Zoo a call right now at two. It's 5.30 in the morning and Mike Reiner is already at work. This is Square One here on The Athletic. This is episode three of Square One. I am your host, Mike Reiner. First of all, let me say that I appreciate you all listening to the first two episodes of Square One. It's gotten pretty amazing response. And I do appreciate that very, very much. More than you will ever know because this is new turf for me. Just getting my feet wet in this sort of thing. And I really appreciate the response that we've had so far. And I think you'll like what we have for you today. This is Tuesday, September 1st. About 11 o'clock in the morning when this is being recorded. To give you a little bit of a time frame. I know in the world of podcasts, everything's evergreen. And there is no time. But in the real world, there is time. And this is the time we're operating in. So... It's a little frame of reference there for you. This past week, I read a story on Front Burner in D Magazine that I found nothing short of amazing. And as we pass by the 30th anniversary of the death of Stevie Ray Vaughan, the story had to do with him and the way in which he died, the conventional wisdom that has always been applied and attached to his death that most of us have bought into and the quest of one man who did not exactly buy into that who felt like I guess that there must be something more to this story and set about to find out if in fact there was more even going so far as to recreate the events of that night it's an amazing story so much so that I've read it five times myself And if something holds my attention, five swims through, that says a whole lot for it. It's written by Colin Cahoon, and Colin joins us here today. I appreciate you doing this. Good morning, Mike. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here. Let's go through a little bit of your story first, because I got to tell you, the name was completely unfamiliar to me, usually (laughs) on front burner, by the way. Shout out to all the guys at D Magazine, Tim, Matt, Zach, Elizabeth, all the rest of you guys that I know over there. But usually when I see something on front burner, it's by somebody that I have some idea who they are, a byline that I've seen before. This was different. I had no idea of you. So how did you get hooked up with it? Did you just write this and say, hey, would you guys like this? Or how'd that work? Yeah, Um you know, I'm retired as a patent attorney now and uh, or semi-retired and mostly just doing my author gig now, which includes books and articles. And and I had always wanted to to write this article. I mean, it's it's been something I've wanted to write for a long time. And, and for reasons we can talk about, I kind of felt like my, my tongue was tied in some respects. And so I wrote it and I thought, well, where's a good place to, to do this? This, uh, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan's a Texas boy, grew up in Dallas. Um, no better place in Dallas, Texas to get this published. So I sent it over, over the transom really, cause they don't know me over there over to D magazine and, uh, they read it and they, they said, Hey, we like this. This is really great. And, um, so I said, well, what do we got to do to get it published? And I got a very nice, um, email back that said, well, Colin, you have to say, 
uh, publish it and we'll publish it. And I said, okay, publish it. And so, boom, so there, boom, there we go. Yeah. So it just kind of <laughs> happened. That's pretty awesome. Um, like, like I say, I had no idea who you were, but we had a phone conversation setting this up and you told me that you were semi-retired and you spend half the year here and half in Steamboat, Steamboat Springs, Springs, Colorado. Colorado. Yeah, that's correct. And what's the nature of the other writing that you do? Uh, well, I've got uh, two uh, novels that have published. One is called The Man with the Black Box, and then there's a sequel called Charlie Calling. They are historical fiction mystery thrillers. Kind of a mouthful there, but mm-hmm. I've got those two published. I've got a third that um, an agent is shopping for me that is about um, Vietnam vet helicopter pilots who were injured in combat. So these are all Purple Heart guys, mm-hmm. and I've got 10 of these guys under contract, fascinating guys. Uh, and I tell their stories, a chapter per guy. You know, I, I take you up to about where they're going to get whacked, and then we move forward through their lives. Uh, and also tell you about their childhood. So those those are the books that I've written, and I've got a few articles here and there out there that I've been writing, working more and more on writing now that I don't have to to do that job thing anymore. So Right. Yeah. Now, there are a couple of other threads that go into this story that I want to find out how they connect up with you. Sure. One is flying. Now, you did tell me that you spent some time in the Army as a helicopter pilot. Right. Yeah. I was, uh, so the army put me through school and so I owed them some time. And when I got out, I, like most guys in my generation, I thought I want to be the next general Patton and, uh, did some training that convinced me that was not where I wanted to be, but instead fell in love with helicopters. So went to flight school and flew helicopters in the army and served, uh, the United States army for five years, got out as a captain in 1988. And this is something that has the helicopter thing has just stayed with you since and you kept doing it and, and yeah, well, you know, I went to, so from the army, I went into law school here at SMU Mm -hmm. in Dallas, Texas, which by the way is where I met my beautiful wife, Susan. I always have to give out a shout out to Susan. Of course. Yeah. And just a real quick tip for your listeners. If you ever want to re meet a really, really hot woman, um, Go, you got to go to SMU and take the complex federal litigation class because that's, I'm telling you, that's that's where I met her. And evidently that class is just chock full of hot women. So just, just a little tip out there. All right. But, that's good so to I, know. Yeah. Met Susan, got married. And uh, when I got out of law school, um, because of my helicopter background, I got hired to be basically what they call an aviation lawyer, uh, which meant that I was uh, mostly defending um, airframe manufacturers, engine manufacturers, that kind of thing. And so I actually got to put that helicopter stuff to use. Um, it's a little expensive to fly a helicopter if the army's not paying the bill on it, but Mm -hmm. I, I have, uh, flown planes. I have a, an instrument, uh, fixed wing rating as well and commercial helicopter rating. And, um, I've owned a plane and stuff like that, but, uh, so I've kind of dabbled in it over the years. Right. Now the other thread here is Stevie Ray Vaughan. Did you have any particular affinity for him or his music? Uh, well, when, when I moved to Dallas, I did, because I have to tell you when I was in the, you know, Stevie Ravon really kind of took off what in the mid eighties, I mm-hmm. guess is when he kind of exploded on the scene. And I was stationed in Fort Ord, California when all that happened. Right. And, um, he wasn't getting much airplay in California, at least that I could tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I got to, to Dallas, you know, to go to law school in 88, uh, you could hear a lot of Steve Ray Vaughn and, and he's, he's fabulous. I was, you know, I dabbled in music in high school and, um, I don't, I don't think you have to be a, a, a musical genius yourself to recognize his genius. I mean, he was, 
um, truly amazing. He was absolutely extraordinary. And and by the way, understand that that you actually turned Stevie Ray Vaughan down from a gig where you were running a band and he auditioned and and you rejected him. Is that is uh, that rumor uh, true? Brilliant move on my part. Yeah, I was going to say, how, how does that rank on on the level of the dumbest things you've ever done? Very in your life? very high. Very high. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if it's the highest, but it's right up there. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I figured. Yeah. Yeah, we had an odd way of bumping up against each other throughout the course of his life and mine. And like at the very end, I, I got to know him a little bit better than I ever had, not due to anything having to do with us so much, but more because our wives, my wife, then his then girlfriend, who would later become his wife, they knew each other. Okay. Because his wife was a model and my wife was her agent. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah that's so, quite. A, so that, you know him from from young a young man. Yeah, what, I guess you went to junior high together or high um, school. Or he's three years younger than me. Yeah. So I don't know if we were ever in the same school together at the same time. I don't think we were, but we both grew up in Oak Cliff, mm. and out there, if you were playing music as a kid, like I was, you definitely knew the Vaughn brothers. Yeah, I mean, you knew Jimmy more than Stevie because at that time, if if Billy Gibbons was not the best guitar player in Texas, Jimmy Vaughn was. Mm-hmm. And up here, we were pretty convinced it was Jimmy. In fact, I, I couldn't tell you too much about Billy Gibbons back then. But among those who really followed the scene back then and were old enough to know what was going on down in Houston and Dallas, which I was not really, it was one or the other. And, you know, Jimmy played a whole lot different back then back then psychedelia was in and it was all about getting feedback and really playing out there stuff and everything and jimmy did that back then he went down a different path which he has stayed stayed true to in pretty short order after all that was over and stevie followed him down that road except stevie found a way to mix in the two as well yeah but they were both Really, really remarkable players. But, uh, yeah, that's my connection with Stevie. Yeah. And he was just a a really amazing guy there at the end. He'd gotten sober, and he was staying true to it. And his he was deeply in love with his wife. In fact, I think, and it's widely suspected amongst her circles, that that was what – led to the events of that night because after that show up in Wisconsin, he was really, really anxious to get back to her. Yeah. He'd been away from her for a few days and when he was not around her, he just couldn't function that well. And he was really anxious to get back to her. Um, As far as what happened that night, tell us a little bit about what led you into the seemingly rather extreme step of going up there and trying Mm -hmm. to, recreate that night yeah so uh i was working for one of the um i like to call them the big downtown dallas blood-sucking law firms at the time as a junior associate and my boss walked in super nice guy and uh, handed me this file and i looked at it and um i you know i'd known about the stevie ray vaughn crash case i mean if you're a helicopter pilot you kind of hear about the different crashes and stuff but i looked at the file and it's the stevie ray vaughn crash and I said, wow, this is this is amazing. And he said, yeah, we're representing the engine manufacturer in this case. 
And uh, even though I was a pretty junior lawyer, uh, I think he, he trusted me enough to figure out what happened. And that was, that was basically my assignment is, is you got to figure out what happened in this case. You're going to handle every, every one of those cases split into what they call the damage side and the liability side. And uh, it was, I kind of took charge of the liability side. Yeah. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you, you know, you've got the, you've got the NTSB report, uh, which everybody had. And I think that's where everybody you alluded to. Everybody latching onto the ground fog that was mm-hmm. in the area. Right. And that's because that's just, that's a, a throwaway line in the NTSB report. It says, pilot error, uh, ground fog in the area. And everybody, oh, ground fog must have killed Steve Barry Vaughn. And that, that just didn't make sense to me for a number of reasons. And um, so I said, I, I got to figure this out. And so that's what I set out to do is, is to, to do that. And I hired an expert witness and went out there and recreated the, the flight to see. So you didn't much buy into the conventional wisdom from the start, huh? No. And I, I think um, part of that may be my experience with fog, because when I was stationed in the Army, I was stationed in Fort Ord, California, which is at the mouth of the Monterey Bay. Right. And that has, there's an airfield there called Fritchie Army Airfield. It has the reputation as being the most fogged in airport that the Army has, because the fog would roll in in the morning, it would recede back and then roll back in mm-hmm. the afternoon. And so I dealt with fog. The proverbial marine layer. Yeah, I've dealt with fog all the time. I flew in it constantly. I had lots of time in the fog. And I knew fog doesn't kill you. It's, you know, it's it's one thing. If I could do an analogy for the folks who are listening out there. If if there was a, a, a smoke in your garage and your car was parked in the garage, leaving the garage wouldn't be much of a problem, would it? I mean, if that's where the smoke is, you think all I got to do is back out of the garage and, and I'm gone. Right. So having ground fog on the ground and taking off is not that big a deal. You're just getting out of the garage and then everything's fine. The time when ground fog's a problem when you try to land, right? That's yeah. what, that's when you're trying to park the car in the garage right, right. and you don't, you don't know where the end of the garage is. Right. So, um, I just didn't buy it. I just, it just didn't make sense to me. Was it hard to find others to go through this recreation with you and, and to, latch on to your theory or did you even try to find others who would latch on to it or well and you know at, at that time i didn't really have a theory i just i just didn't buy the popular theory it just that yeah. didn't make sense to me so um i uh, there, there's a kind of a small community out there of expert witnesses that that recreate these kind of flights and so i had to find one that i trusted and I knew, that would do well and and um, I knew this guy named Joe Kettles. Uh, you know, the, being an expert witness, you have to be smart enough to figure something out. And then you have to be eloquent enough to explain it to a jury. Those mm-hmm. are the kind of two criteria. And Joe really fit that bill. He was just this super nice guy that, uh, you know, when he grinned at you, you just couldn't help but to smile back. Uh, but he also had tons of flight time on him. So I contacted Joe. And uh, said, Joe, what do you think? And and he said, Yeah, I agree. It doesn't it doesn't smell right, Colin. It just doesn't make sense. Um, he didn't know what happened either. But there's no substitute for going out there and trying to recreate what the pilot was seeing mm-hmm. and try to figure out what happened. So mm-hmm. that's what we did. Is we scheduled to go out to Elkhorn, Wisconsin, uh, where they've got a little resort out there, and checked into the hotel. It was an off season, so we wouldn't have a lot of gawkers around, you know, asking us what we're doing. And uh, rented a, a helicopter that was identical to what Jeff Brown, the pilot, was flying. And we went about to try to figure out what happened. Is he a guy that you had a lot of experience with? 
previously. Joe, did you know him real well? Well, honestly, I knew his son, John, uh, who was also a lawyer in town, uh, much better. And that's how I got an introduction to Joe. John was an Army helicopter pilot as well and had gone to law school. And uh, we became friends. And I think it was through John that he said, you know, my dad, Joe, does some expert witness testifying. And, and that's how I linked up with him. Did you, were you pretty confident as you said about this, that you were going to find out something different? No, no, not really. Um, you know, I, and, and I did, aviation litigation was probably what I did mostly during the first six, seven years of my career. And then I transitioned into the patent law. Um, and there are, there are times, you know, first of all, Mike, when an aircraft crashes and you don't find something broken, what's the automatic response? It's pilot error. Sure. Right? I mean, that's just insane. Right. Pilot screwed up. Um, well, so you go out and you try to recreate that. And sometimes you never figured out, you never, you can't ever figure out why, why did this happen? So we weren't, we weren't confident we were going to solve the riddle. Um, but we had to make the effort. Um, you know, we had to give it a shot. Um, Jeff Brown, the pilot that night was not instrument rated. And that's Correct. something that you get into yeah. in the article a good bit that had an instrument rated pilot been flying that, that copter, then probably none of this would have happened. Yeah. And I do have to admit that that's something that I picked up on very early that, um, got my attention because it's a little, uh, there, there are a lot of helicopter pilots out there because the Army cranks them out by the thousands every mm -hmm. year. Um, the Army cranks out instrument-rated helicopter pilots. So it's unusual to run across a commercial pilot who's not instrument-rated, who's flying for a company with a reputation like the one he was flying for. Um, my guess is he's kind of, you know, I, I don't know him personally, um, but from a professional standpoint, he was probably kind of bottom of the barrel. The last guy they called when nobody else could take the flight, so yeah. to speak. And um, for those of you that are pilots out there, you can appreciate it. You know, a helicopter is, it's very difficult to fly. And if you don't pay attention to it for even a split second, it, it just goes to hell. I mean, you know, if you... If you're particularly if you're close to the ground, you can close your eyes and be dead in a matter of seconds. Um, it, it takes a lot of attention, and when you're flying at night, uh, there are sometimes where you can't tell what side's up and what side's down. And I would I, and you experienced that. Oh yeah, in the course of this. Oh absolutely, yeah. And uh, I personally, I would never, I would never fly at night with a non-instrument rated helicopter pilot. That's just my opinion. Uh, so that just struck me as strange that this guy was not capable of, of going inside the cockpit and relying on the instruments instead of seeing what's outside the cockpit. He mm -hmm. did not have the, the ability to do that. And not only was he not instrument rated, but, and I don't remember the exact time frame, but sometime not too shortly before the accident, he'd actually failed an instrument check ride. So it wasn't as, as if he was competent, but just not rated. He just wasn't competent right. to fly instruments. Um, so it's something his his company surely knew about when they assigned him to that flight. That's amazing because, as you point out in the story, it seemed like everybody after that gig was ready to get out of there. And there were four copters, right, all lined up. Yep. And he was the only one that was not instrument rated. Right. They're they found all... three guys who could pull that off, and he happened to be the one that that 
couldn't. Yeah, and they probably had a whole, I don't know how many helicopter pilots they had uh, that that company, you know, that were working for him, but, you know, they probably had a dozen or 15. So how he got assigned on that night mission, I, I don't know. I don't recall the rationale for doing that, but there he was, four helicopters. He's in what we call Chalk 3, mm-hmm. the third helicopter, and uh, they're all spooled up, ready to go. They're sitting on a, uh, basically on a golf course, mm-hmm. and... um uh, originally, uh, Jimmy and Connie, Jimmy's wife and mm-hmm. Stevie Ray Vaughan were another also, Kimball girl, by the, by the way. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were, all three were scheduled to fly from Elkhorn, Wisconsin back to Chicago. Cause it's a, it's a what? 20 minute flight. It's right. a, it's a three hour drive or mm-hmm. something, whatever it is. Um, and at the last minute they informed the group that there was really, there was only one seat left. And, um, you know, as you just mentioned a while ago, maybe this is the reason he was on the flight. He, he, Stevie Ray Vaughan really wanted to get back. Yeah. As I understand it, that is the reason. Yeah. And he, he approached his brother and, you know, he could have deferred to his older brother and said, Hey, you want to take the seat? But he he asked him, he said, Jimmy, I I really want to get back, man. Do you mind if I take the seat? And Jimmy said, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll wait here with Connie. We'll, we'll wait for the next round. You know, they were going to fly back again and get the rest of them. So Jimmy said, you know, go for it. I wonder if he's tortured by that. Oh, I, by I can't, I can't imagine. Um, and of course, you know, skipping forward, uh, Jimmy was one of the first guys on the crash site after they found it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I can't, because they had to identify the body and I can't imagine your little brother, asking if he could take your seat and then you giving it to him and then going, you know, later that morning having to walk out there, walk the crash scene, which I've walked by the way as well. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't imagine that morning looking at that, that kind of destruction and, and the body and so forth. But, but anyway, so, um, after all that, that night, um, let, let's go back to the, the, seen there that night. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the conventional wisdom was that fog was related to this. Yeah. And you debunked that pretty quickly. I mean, like, yeah. like you knew from the outset, well, yeah, there was fog on the ground, but a copter yeah, well, takes off and within a matter of seconds, it's above the fog. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, get back to the area. So they're on this golf course and the report at the time was patchy ground fog. Yeah. So I, I've been in a lot of patchy ground fog before and, um, they, they clearly had enough visibility to take off. I mean, they all took off, right? You, you're not on instruments initially. You can't be, so you gotta be out to be able to see the sky, mm-hmm. uh, to take off unless you're doing an instrument departure. And none of these guys did an instrument departure. So, um, that just didn't, that just didn't wash with me. It didn't make sense. There wasn't anything, there's nothing close to the golf course. Right. It's just, that's kind of a flat area. And so I thought, I, I don't see it. I, you know, I, I think he takes off, he gets through the ground fog. So what, what happens next? Right. Um, and so that's where Joe, Joe came in is, uh, Joe said, let's, let's do this the way they did it. Now we couldn't recreate the ground fog, but both Joe and I are thinking, I don't think it had any effect on this. So we got the helicopter, we, we parked it at the, the, where it was parked on the golf course. Mm-hmm. And at a, about the same time that night, we went out and we cranked it up. And the first thing we noticed, Mike, was um, the, the, where the helicopter was parked was right next door to a big parking lot. Right. And this parking lot had those big, tall metal poles 
with the very, very bright lights, and they were on that night. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that light dominated the area. I mean, it really lit it up. It lit where we were. It lit where the parking lot was. It made it look like daylight, which made me think even more, okay, this patchy ground fog, it, this was nothing. You know, it wasn't yeah. like it was dark and there was patchy ground Right, fog. right. There was lights out there. Um, and so the first thing that really struck us is as we took off from that golf course and we cleared the level of those light posts, uh, we were suddenly in total darkness, absolute total darkness. And the reason for that was twofold. First of all, uh, we'd lost our night vision. You know, if you, if you walk into a room and turn the lights on and turn back off and you lose your night vision, sure. it takes a while to get it back. Right. So we, that was point one. We'd lost our night vision. And the second thing was that this golf course and the amphitheater where they were playing, it sits down in a little valley, and it's kind of a, surrounded by these short hills, some of which make up the ski resort. And so you're, th- there's nothing around there to look at with lights. There's no buildings. There's no roads. There, everything was darkness. And as we took off, we were just suddenly uh, in, completely in blind so to speak right right and that's where the instrument part comes in all right so you and joe are up there after as you're recreating this thing explain what went on when you guys were recreating it and tell us a little bit about what he saw and what he told you to do yeah. during all this. So as we, once we realized we we're both blind, uh, Joe did what he's trained to do, and that is he immediately transitioned into the instruments. So you've got an artificial horizon, a turn and bank, vertical speed, all the things these instrument pilots are familiar with that tell you which side is up and which side is down. Because if, if you've never done it before, if, if you train as, as an instrument pilot, you cannot trust your body. Your body will lie to you every time. And if you think you're turning left, you're turning right. If you think you're going up, you're going down. So that's... The, Gosh, that seems strange. It, it's, it is really odd, but um, it, it, that's the first thing you learn as an instrument pilot is you, you cannot trust your senses. That's why you've got to divorce yourself from your senses, and you have to rely on the instruments in front of you and just ignore what you're feeling. So Joe focuses in on the instruments, and he instructs me over the intercom. He says, you know, to tell me when we break out, which meant to me, tell me when I can see outside the cockpit what side's up and what side's down. Because right now, neither one of us know what side's up and what side's down. So um, I said, you know, Roger. And uh, Joe kept climbing out. He just kept his climb out. And after just a few seconds, we popped up above those hills that surrounded that valley. And then all of a sudden, you could see, you know, the, the highways headed out to Chicago. You could see buildings in the distance. You could tell, oh, yeah, we're, we're right side up. You know, good. And I said, okay, Joe, we, you know, we broke out, and he transitioned back up. And, that, and that's when Joe, I think that's when it struck Joe like a lightning bolt. It hadn't really hit me quite yet. I knew mm-hmm. there was a problem now. I know I'm thinking, okay, I, I think there's a problem here, Joe. There's, there's more to this than ground fog. But I think Joe had figured it out at that point, and he said, all right, we need, let's, I want to show you what happened. We'll, we'll do this tomorrow morning. So the next morning we get up, and we do the same thing over again, okay? Um, the first time, though, Joe says, now just imagine you're, you're Jeff Brown, but I want your eyes open and uh, just see what happens. And so we took off from the golf course. We cleared the light posts, and we just kept flying, and, and we flew out. And I said, I, I don't get it. I, he, the place he crashed is half a mile from where he took off. It's mm-hmm. .6 miles, in fact. 
And in order to hit that hill, given that maneuver, he would have had to climb out of the parking lot, you know, climb over the parking lot, turn right about 40 degrees and stop climbing and basically just aim straight, straight for that hill. That's what he would have had to done. And I, so I said, I don't, I don't get it, Joe. How did this happen? And Joe said, okay, now I'm going to show you. So we went back down, we landed again. And Joe said, this time, Colin, I want you to be on the controls with me because we had two sets of controls. And I want you to feel what I'm doing, and I want you to close your eyes when I tell you, and I want you to open them when I tell you, and I'll show you what happened. I said, okay. So I'm on the controls with Joe. My eyes are open. We take off. We clear. Uh, did this seem strange to you, or, no, or did you wonder, what's this guy doing? Yeah, no, I, I knew what he was doing because I, I knew he's, he, what he's telling me is, you know, Jeff Brown was blind for a while. He couldn't see where he was going. So I'm going to make you blind, and then I want to see I, I wasn't exactly sure where he was going. I knew he wanted me to be blind, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so he, he takes off. We clear the, um, the, the light post, and he says, close your eyes. And all this time I got my hands on the controls. Now, if I could digress for just a second. The, the aircraft we're flying was a Belljet Ranger. It's an OH-58. It's a, it's a, you see them as the normal news helicopters. It has a little nose right. in front, right? Um, and they are extremely sensitive to fly. They're, they're like little sports cars. And if you've ever been on one, I defy you to identify what the pilot's doing. Because generally speaking, if they want to turn right, it's just a slight pressure on the cyclic stick between their legs. You don't see the cyclic jamming forward to the right. It's a slight pressure. And you don't even see it. Um, and that's just the way that aircraft is. So I've got my hands on the controls, close my eyes, and I, I could, I think we're climbing. I can feel us climbing straight out, and I'm not feeling any change in the control inputs. So my everything about my body is telling me that we are climbing straight out. And in just a few seconds, Joe will say, "Open your eyes," and I'm going to see the roads to Chicago. Mm -hmm. That's what my body is telling me. Right. But instead, a few seconds later, Joe says, "Open your eyes," and holy crap, Mike! Right in front of me is a ski hill that we are about to smack into. And uh, Joe pulls back as an emergency uh, maneuver to get us above that. And, you know, we just go scooting right above it just with a few feet to spare and climbing back out. And it, it scared the hell out of yeah, me. But it also, a little bit hairy. Yeah, but, but it really made the point. Yeah. That, and that, that's when it struck me. That's when it hit me. I said, that's what killed Jeff Brown. Jeff Brown, he never, he never knew what happened to him. He, he flew above those lights. Everything went black. He's not an instrument pilot. He knows he's not an instrument pilot. He, he can't focus in on the, the cockpit instruments. So what does he do instead? He keeps staring out the windscreen, trying to see where he's going, and he says, I'm just going to hold what I have. I'm not going to change anything, and in a few seconds, I know I'll break out the top. I'll be able to see some lights. Everything will be fine. What he didn't realize is he made a very imperceptible pressure to the right on that cyclic stick. Mm -hmm. And back to our car analogy, how many times you've been driving down the road and you get distracted and without even realizing it, you're drifting out of your lane and you think in your head, you're going straight ahead. Well, for me, about every 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, I think my wife would agree that for me too. But um, And that's what happened to Jeff. I mean, he, he, he didn't, he didn't realize what happened and he probably didn't 
have any idea until the split second before they hit that ski hill because the ski hill wasn't lit. And so he, he didn't know. Wow. Today that changed the rock and roll landscape forever, especially in this part of the world, because as I said, Stevie was, and I don't know, there's some that might have something to say about this, but for me, he still is about the biggest thing that's ever come out of Dallas. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah. He, he was an amazing cat, an amazing player. He's missed by all of his fans and everybody that knew him. And this story did so much to shed light on this that had never been shed before. It's really an amazing story. You will find it on Front, front, front Burner. Front Burner, it's easy for me to say, on D Magazine. So if you'd like to check it out, by all means do so. It's a wonderful, wonderful read. Colin Cahoon, I cannot thank you enough for being with us today and telling us this story. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure and a pleasure to meet you as well. All right. That is Square One. Thank you for listening. <laughs>